Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 24 of Middle Brown Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Ghani. Derek, I want to play a game with you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before you play, what's your name? My name is Isabel Arf. All right. Uh, and uh, Orch Jigsaw, you're the one. I'm cool with you're the one because I want to play a game, Derek. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the name of this game is I'm going to read you a headline. Mm. I'm going to leave one. I'm going to leave a name out. And okay. we're going to try to get to what the actual point of this article is together. Um, okay. So this is more blank. involved than your usual gags. <laughs> blank charged by Securities and Exchange Commission with failing to disclose payments. The blank, I will give a hint, is an actor who we are both familiar with and that I have talked about multiple times. And the payments are to something that is very funny. Um, something that I think I have made fun of on this very podcast before. Can I get um, the headline again? Yes. Blank charged by Securities and Exchange Commission with failing to disclose payments. So, I want to give you a chance to try to figure out who is being charged and what did they fail to disclose payments about. Okay. So, um, I'm going to go with... I'm going to give you a slight hint. Okay. Um, because that's a very broad category of actors who I have mentioned. Uh-huh. So, this is an actor who is friends with Donald Trump. An actor who is friends with Donald Trump. Yes. Okay. Um, and who once released an album. Who once released an album. Okay. All right. I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with your friend and mine, uh, Aikido master Steven Seagal. You got it in one. Already nice. doing great. <laughs> and but, I'm, but what he didn't disclose, I'm going to go with um, some manner of seafood, seafood no. futures. So the Securities and Exchange Commission announced Thursday it had settled charges against actor Steven Seagal for failing to disclose payments for promotional work. The Above the Law Star was charged with promoting an investment in an initial coin offering conducted by Bitcoin2Gen, B2G. According to the SEC, Seagal failed to disclose he was promised $250,000 in cash and $750,000 worth of B2G tokens for his work. The promotions included posts on his social media accounts encouraging the public not to, quote-unquote, miss out on the ICO, as well as a press release titled, Zen Master Steven Seagal has become the brand ambassador of Bitcoin to Gen. Um, the press release included a quotation from Steven Seagal stating that he had endorsed the ICO wholeheartedly. Uh, Rookie um, mistake. Never get paid in Bitcoin. Always get paid in Bitcoin. It's the only way I get paid. <laughs> Do you ever think about how Bitcoin is destroying the entire world? Uh, rat, uh, like like uh, fucking up the economy and all those servers, basically killing the uh, the the ozone layer and melting Iceland. <laughs> yes, they they are like single handedly reverting basically every effort to combat climate change, just so you can have uh, some money you can buy drugs with online. Which I hate to tell 
Bitcoin people, but there's other ways to buy drugs online that don't require you to have Bitcoin. Yeah, all you need to know is to just have to know a guy. Yeah, you just have to know a guy. I mean, you probably can't buy like an assassination online without Bitcoin. <laughs> probably and, not. But um, I think that Steven Seagal, of all people, is going to be able to get by without having to deal with Bitcoin. Yeah. Oh, man. We Remember when a... he got represented? He got appointed as a special representative by Russia for U.S. Yeah. Russian humanitarian ties. Yeah, like Frank Zappa, but bad. <laughs> I have often said that Steven Seagal is like Frank Zappa, but bad. But we don't always talk about two hundred motels on this podcast. No, we don't. Uh, we don't uh, talk about over hyphen night sensation either. Um, do you have a favorite Zappa record? Um, my favorite Zappa record probably Uncle Meat or um, uh, uh, Lumpy Gravy. Probably those two. What about you? Probably, like weirdly, probably Zappa in New York, the live album from 1978. Because, um, but otherwise, probably the Normie pick would be Hot Rats. Would be my favorite. <laughs> Hot Rats is fucking great. To be fair, Zappa's got a wildly deep bench. Like you got yeah. Rolling in it for the money, Freak Out, uh, Yellow Shark is amazing. Most of his live albums are pretty incredible. Uh, but uh, not we don't often uh, we don't only talk about Frank Zappa and his deep catalog, or how incredibly stupid our world is. Sometimes, we talk about movies. I agree. I feel like you <laughs> wanted me to say something there, but I don't know what I'm supposed to say, Derek. Yes, we do talk about movies when we're not, like, not doing this podcast, and we're actually doing the podcast. Yes, we, we do talk about movies sometimes. I mean, you ever, you ever wake up in the morning, and against your best, uh, against your best instincts, you turn on the fucking Twitter hate machine, and then... You realize, you realize, damn, everything that happens is the most stupid possible thing that could be happening. Every day. That's, that's my life right now. Ah, okay. But let's talk about some movies instead. Let's talk about some, so, some happy, uplifting movies about the uh, – let's, let's just check my notes here. Um, the Folly of War and um, Authoritarianism and uh, the, um, the stranglehold that capitalism has on – on on the world well okay a very appropriate set of movies i guess sorry i i i got distracted for a moment about uh by reading a conspiracy theory about what kofefe actually means i thought it was a non remember kofefe Derek, yeah, do you feels- remember kofefe <laughs> remember the days where that was something that we talked about uh yeah it feels like it was 25 years ago <laughs> Well, it was only 2017, and luckily oh, this boy. year, with coronavirus, we have a new theory about what he was talking about the whole time. So, Operation Coronavirus, also Operation <laughs> COVID-19, Adrenochrome is made up of ferritin and iron, FE2, uh. <laughs> Operation Cove, FE2, Operation Covfefe. Think about it, Derek. Think about the levels there. Think about the layers. Donald J. Trump is so smart that he left these clues for us two years ago to let us know this would happen. Uh, he was real. And he's also <laughs> on YouTube and he's a time traveler. He's, he's a time traveler now. Have you seen this? Oh, there's a, there's a, there's an uproar of in the Q community. Uh, well, Derek, I assumed you keep up with QAnon. <laughs> Here, uh, this might surprise you, but I don't. Well, uh, I don't, I a, don't try to, I don't try to entertain such buffoonery. I love to entertain such buffoonery. And uh, last night, um, well, a couple days ago, I actually found this out that there's a guy on YouTube who is claiming uh, that he is actually the younger version of Q and that Q is him time traveled back from the future. So he's like a trancer. 
A what? A trancer. What is a fuck is a trancer? Uh, Trancers is a movie from the 80s directed by Charles Band, uh, where uh, a future cop goes back in time. Uh, to stop like, the global pedophiles? No, no, it's it's more the idea of you can go back in time through your through your bloodline so you can inhabit the body of an ancestor. It's kind of like Assassin's Creed. Oh, fun. You heard, you heard it here first, folks. Assassin's Creed ripped off Charles Band's trancers. <laughs> I've always been saying that every day of my life. <laughs> but no, the, the, this guy is saying that he is actually Q. It's just that he is Q from the past because Q is actually him in the future gone back to the past to tell people about things. And when people have pointed out, hey, Q said that he will only do Q drops on 4chan and then 8chan based on like the specific code set. This probably sounds like fucking gibberish to people who know, have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, uh, I kind of know what you're talking about, but it still sounds like gibberish. Um, and he's saying the reason that uh, his drops are real and why he's allowed to go on YouTube is because Q has said multiple times that disinformation is necessary. So the disinformation was that Q only posts on 8chan or 8kun now, as this is called, uh, since it got shut down and reopened. And because the weeb runs deep. And um, now the whole idea is that uh, he is he is actually Q. Uh, instead of John F. Ke- or instead of Robert F. Kennedy, like people thought it was, or John Kennedy Jr. That was it. Yeah, I thought the, I thought both those men were dead. Uh, well, John F. Kennedy Jr. is dead, but he might have faked his death and become Q. Huh. Yeah. Um. To be clear to our audience, this is all bullshit. But it's very fun to watch this man who is very clearly trolling in his YouTube videos. He has developed a very serious following among some Q heads because Q has been kind of MIA recently. Or he's only been like, um, essentially retweeting things. However, you do that on fucking eight coon on an image board. Oh. And, um, since he's been MIA, the Q community has just gone even nuttier than before. And they're taking whatever they can get. And all the old Q heads are like, this guy's clearly bullshitting. This is, this is ridiculous. Clearly, this guy's not actually Q. Clearly, there's a real man who has an inside like look into the government and probably works closely with Donald Trump, who is telling us on this pedophile image board that there's X, Y, and Z military happenings and that Hillary Clinton drinks adrenochrome made from the blood of children that she molests. That's all cool. But this guy, he's bullshitting you. And... Uh, yeah, that's a, a quick update into where QAnon is at right now. Um, I highly recommend keeping up to date on the QAnon happenings uh, if you really want to have the most brainworms possible. Um, I recommend doing literally anything else. Um, so like, Derek, crack, crack, crack open a book. You know, FaceTime. Fa- books won't tell you about the global pedophile elite, Derek. Well, FaceTime, some of them will actually. FaceTime your friends. Uh, make a make a pizza and a cast iron skillet. Anything but getting P- like pizza, Derek. Come on now. <laughs> Fucking and, people are gonna think we're part of the like global cabal if you keep up with things like that. Talking about walnut sauce or whatever. The hell is walnuts? Listen, don't okay, we can't don't even answer this. that. <laughs> we cannot get into the exact specifics of PizzaGate right now. But uh, what we can get into is a couple movies about how war maybe isn't all it's cracked up to be. Mm. And in, in the words of the great American philosophers, they might be giants. I don't want to live in this world anymore. <laughs>
Uh, all right. So we got a couple of matchups as we usually do. So we're going to, we've been away for a while. So we're going to, gonna... <laughs> sorry, sorry. I was looking at my email. I just got an email from Bad Dragon about their update about coronavirus. Oh. <laughs> um, do they recommend social distancing and using their products? Um, they do recommend social distancing, but they're also just t- they're giving us a heads up. Hey, we're no longer doing made to order custom orders starting Sunday because uh, we're only going to be doing like our kind of barest bones operations. So for right now, uh, we are out of custom orders for Bad Dragon, which is tragic. Uh, and I just wanted to give our people that update while I while I saw it come in right across the 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 AP desk. We have urgent update from Bad Dragon. <laughs> okay, we've been recording for just on, just south of fifteen minutes right now. And if, for some reason, this is someone's first episode, they will never listen to this show ever again. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, Derek? What, what kind of audience I, are we trying to cultivate? I think we're trying to cultivate the hardcore only. This is only know, for the most extreme listeners. I don't know if we want to blackpill our audience on this stupid movie podcast we do. I'm, I'm not blackpilling it. I'm redpilling people, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Mm, listen, okay. All right. Two, okay. Okay. Here's how we generally do this. Back in what seems like forever ago, in August of 2018, <laughs> we took Christ. we took a snapshot of the IMDb top 250 films of all time, and we put them in a large single elimination bracket. Uh, and to fill out that 256 uh, film bracket, we both added three of our own kind of wildcard choices. Um, so the idea is we are going to do each of these matchups one by one until we get to the greatest film of all time, Asterisk. We do uh, two of these matchups, uh, two of these matchups per episode, and it's two films per matchup. So by uh, by the most liberal of estimates, this show will be concluded probably around 2027. So that being said, we also have one other rule that we try to abide by, and that's the veto. Um, I don't even remember how many vetoes we each have. <laughs> Vito O'Rourke. Um, I think we have. <laughs> I think you have three still, and I have two because I that used. That sounds right. I I'm pretty sure I've used two of them so far, and you used one to move Raging Bull forward. That's oh, and I, I moved one correct. to move. Um, one one for your name. No, was your name a yes? Your name was one of those, and was, the other one was another anime. It was uh, to make sure I don't have to watch. Uh, um, right, right, right. The Grave of the Fireflies on someone else's schedule. No, I think I think the veto was for something else. I think it was for was, Rush. That's what moved for, forward. No, no, no. I mean, I think the second veto that you used was not for your name because I think due to like, um, oh, the fact that I think yeah, I, 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 could, I was I very passionate that. about it. I think I conceded that one. There was oh, one. Oh, it was other three one. idiots. Three idiots. That's right. Duh. Okay. So maybe maybe um, you folks will hear more about three idiots later in the podcast. Yeah, maybe like mark your calendars for next Christmas. We'll talk about three idiots again. No, I mean this uh, one. Oh, this one? We'll oh, get interesting. Okay. So here are two matchups for this episode. He said 17 minutes after like Q- QAnon, ra- like 20 minutes of QAnon ramblings. Hey, if you um, want a bonus episode where I talk about QAnon, just send me a line. <laughs> uh, so what <laughs> we got today? We've got uh, the 71 seed Dust Boot versus the 186 seed Platoon. Uh, a lot of double O's there. And the 58 seed, The Lives of Others, versus the 199 seed, The Wages of Fear. So, uh, so how about we just, uh, we get right to it. Um, get so, right to it, 17 yes. minutes later. Yes, right. Um, so, our first matchup. 
Uh, I literally just said what seed it was. The 71 seed Das Boot, which is German for the boot, or the boat, rather. Uh, released in 1981, directed by Wolfgang Peterson, also written by Wolfgang Peterson, based on the book by Lothar Gunther Buchheim, starring uh, Jürgen Prochnow, Herbert Gronmeier, and Klaus Venemann. I don't have a budget in, in, like, dollars. I have a budget in Deutschmark, and I have a budget in euros. Um, but I think it was a pretty unqualified success because its worldwide gross was equivalent to $225 million American in 2019 dollars-ish. Um, so not a smash necessarily, but, uh, let's just say that it carries a long shadow. At the 55th Academy Awards, Das Boot was nominated for six awards, including Best Director. Uh, didn't win any. But uh, ho- currently holds the record for most uh, Academy Award nominations for a German film. Versus uh, Platoon, released in 1986, uh, written and directed by Oliver Stone, starring uh, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Charlie Sheen, many others. A pretty pretty substantial hit, $6 million budget, $138.5 million take. Nominated for Counting, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 Academy Awards, winning 4, including Best Picture, Best Director Oliver Stone, Best Editing, and Best Sound. So, I think we were coming from a similar place with this particular matchup, because I think we had both already had seen Platoon, mm-hmm. and we both had not already seen Dust Boot. Correct. I, th- I think I think we based on like the vibe I've gotten from both of us, it seems like both of us had very similar reactions to these movies as well. I think you're right. Um, but you are um, – I do want to get this out, out of the way um, early on. You are an avowed Oliver Stone hater? I am. Very much. I, I do not care for the man. The man or his movies. And that is an important distinction. It's not like uh, – what's his name? Richard Linklater, where he seems like a fine guy, but I think his movies are terrible. I think that uh, Oliver Stone seems like a real piece of shit, too. I think Oliver Stone seems like the kind of guy who would be really into the first 15 minutes of this podcast. I think – yes. I think that Oliver Stone is the kind of person that Alex Jones was made for. Let's say that. Uh, much to the chagrin of our uh, of our friend and your former podcasting partner, uh, Ross Burks, who is a huge uh, Oliver Stone fan. Yes, very, very big one. Um, and Platoon was, from my remembrance, was one of his quote unquote better films because I don't, I didn't remember hating it. I remember it, I remembered it not being very good, but I didn't have like strong opinions on it. Um, whereas now I continue to not have strong opinions, but those strong, not strong opinions are middling to good instead of bad. <laughs> A real upgrade. When I saw Platoon for the first time, I, you were in Vietnam. I was in Vietnam. I was I was in the shit, as they say. When I first saw Platoon, I think I saw it in less than ideal conditions. And I don't mean I saw it on like VHS or whatever. It's like I think I saw a good rip of it on a laptop. Which, you know, I like I'm not a purist as far as uh, uh viewing conditions goes, but there is a difference between watching something on your laptop and watching something on, on a television. And Definitely. there is also a uh, a bigger difference when you watch something on a good television because for the longest time, up until a few months ago, I had uh, the television that I owned and I watched uh, pretty much everything on was 19 inches across or diagonally, very small television. And I have since upgraded uh, to a 40 inch television, a very like a nice like a a cheap flat screen television, which is still a hell of an upgrade from a sort of store brand 19 inch television from like 2013 or whatever it was. 
And one of the first, the first thing that I watched was Heat because, because he naturally, because as heat. you do. But one of the ones I had watched after that, after, uh, after like getting my Plex server set up and all that, one of the first things that I watched after that was Platoon, and it was a revelatory experience, uh, in the sense that I have a better. It enabled me to get like a firmer grasp of what the movie was going for. It allowed me to inhabit the film a bit more. I still think the movie is on the upper end of okay, but yeah, it's definitely yeah. an it's definitely an upgrade from I don't get it, which is where I was before. Gotcha. That, that, I think that's totally fair. I will say this: um, I think that um, uh, the performances in Platoon range from uh, good to needlessly hammy to. To Charlie Sheen. To Charlie Sheen, exactly. Um, I mean, they, ah, man. There's lots of great young actors that could have gotten in the mid-80s and stuck in there. I don't know if Charlie Sheen was the right call. Yeah, like, he's, he's Tom- really not a good fit. Like, I don't... He, he was very praised for this performance. And, wa- like, when I was watching again, I was like, his voiceovers is so flat and seems completely at odds with the rest of the tone of the film. I think he was trying to go for an audio equivalent of a thousand-yard stare, but didn't quite get there. Yeah. Like, I'd even prefer, like, a almost disinterested kind of Harrison Ford doing the voiceover for Blade Runner than I would what he does here. Or uh, a few years down the line, you would have Matthew Modine doing it for uh, Full Metal Jacket. Oh, that's that's significantly better. That's, like, a good one, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that Sheen is completely out of place, but I think a lot of these supporting actors are doing really, really good work. Like, I think that, um, is it Matt Dillon? Uh, Kevin Dillon. Kevin Dillon as Bunny, I think, is his... Yep. name plays the uh the sociopath very very well and very very disturbingly uh, i think that the whole section um in the village is the strongest part of the film yeah it's definitely the um it's the sort of uh emotional thematic sort of that that's where the crux of the film is yeah that's like the, that that's like the perfect um, encapsulation. That's the metonymy of the film. The metonymic scene, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite like Willem Dafoe in this, who is rightly praised as well for his uh, for his performance in this. Yeah. And him and uh, Charlie Sheen share one of the most homoerotic scenes in a war film. They sure do. They sure do. I completely it completely, I completely missed it when I first saw it, but then I saw it in glorious HD, and it's like, well, that's pretty, that's something. That sure as shit is something. There's a lot of homoeroticism in the episode today. Like, what is The Wages of Fear, but a gay love story, essentially? I mean, I'm going to say that three of our four movies today are about men in peril. Yes. And, like... There's there's an inherent homoeroticism that develops there. Kind of. There's, there's a reason um, that the Decemberists wrote the song A Soldiering Life, or The Soldiering Life. Right. Ah, oh, man, remember... Ah, oh, man. Remember how good the Decemberists used to be? Yeah, they, they kind of hit, like, a... They tr- they tried to become the cars and kind of it doesn't fit them as well. Like they hit they hit a pretty they hit kind of a brick wall like two albums ago. I think it was two albums ago. I, I I've heard like their first four albums and I tried to listen to all the ones since then. And each one's like, oh, this is just that, but like less good. <laughs> it's very similar to what I get mad at people for slag- slagging off on the band Low about because. Every single low album, besides actually the most recent one, funny enough, sounded like the same album. But I happen to like all those albums, whereas the Decemberists it really did feel like they plateaued and just stuck there for now. Well, if we can digress for two seconds. Um, no, no way. 
Um, I actually like their first six albums. They have a salt. They have a good six album run from 2002 to 2011. The December and their last yes, and their last two are like there's a four year gap between King is Dead and What a Terrible World, What a Beautiful World, and something happened there, and I don't know what, but I don't know. Those first six records, like like uh, there there's highs and lows, but I think there's a pretty pretty good slugging percentage. See, to me, I always think of everything after everything Hazards of Love afterwards. I always think of as like everything after a ghost is born by wilco where it's all fine but none of it is like as good as it feels like it should be Here, here's my unsolicited recommendation uh, the king is dead was a grower not a shower for me okay I, I i started getting into the king is dead three years after it came out wow so um uh so platoon then oh yeah that movie uh i mean the, the 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 cast generally is good, but just so happens that the lead sucks shit. <laughs> yeah, definitely the worst performance in the film. And I think that uh, there's the oft-quoted thing from, I believe it's Francois Truffaut, that I think is generally wrong, where he says that you can't make an anti-war movie because the act of portraying war is inherently exciting on film. So therefore, the form will not uh, like follow the function. But I gen I generally disagree with that as well. As much as I uh, like Truffaut and his work, yes, that's, that's something that I can never quite square because a lot like most like I would go so far as to say that probably the opposite is closer to the truth. Yes, it's really hard to make a pro war film because <laughs> war just always looks terrible. But I think that Platoon kind of because of Oliver Stone's style, which he would develop for more later and get more in your face about and more like stylistically bold. But Platoon already has hints of that, and it feels exciting when it should be despairing to me, at least in parts of it. Um, like where? I'm curious. Oh, John, I, I watched it like a week ago, which is like six months ago because of sure. the coronavirus shit. So I can't say exactly like right now, but a lot of the like battle scenes, uh, that scene where they happen to find the uh, the like underground tunnels and are going through that, it feels exciting and not like like drudgery to me. And and I also find like like the last like half hour basically is that. I thought it was more like chaotic than exciting. It wasn't like an edge of my seat thing. It was more like sort of. Uh, uh, it felt more like Oliver Stone was trying to put you in like a sleeper hole. Whereas I think the thing that's far more effective he's better at is portraying like a certain ennui and a like sense of defeatedness that everyone who's there is already dead on their feet. Yeah, I don't think uh, – one of the uh, good things about the movie or one of the uh, smart things about the movie is that there's a prevailing sense that no one's getting out of there alive. Yes. Everyone's like – everyone's counting the days until they leave. But there's this uh, – like you say, like a, a prevailing ennui, which if we're done would be a great segue to the film that it's facing. Yeah, I don't have anything else to talk about. So let's talk about The Boot. The Boat, which is like Platoon – but with an acute case of claustrophobia. <laughs> it's it's like downfall, but good, is how I describe it. It's, like, it's like downfall, but good. Um, so, uh... Should, should we, we should clarify right up front which versions we watch, because there's like six different versions of Das Boot. There's like the miniseries, there's the extended miniseries, there's the original theatrical cut, and then there's also a director's cut. I watched the three and a half hour director's cut. Yes, yeah, so that that's the one that's on Netflix, which is the one that I watched as well. Cool. Because, yeah, I wasn't going to watch 10 hours of this. Um, but here's the thing with Das Boot, uh, among, like, among its many qualities. Um, 
probably one of the brisker three and a half hours you can spend. Oh, absolutely. Like uh, the three and a half hours of Das Boot felt shorter than watching Platoon, which is, I think, the shortest movie we watched this session. Platoon's pretty short, but feels a little a little distended. Dust Boots a lean three and a half hours. Yeah, which is impressive. It is very impressive. So what's so what's Dust Boot about? Uh, other than like the, the the folly of war and uh, and um, <laughs> how hard it is to keep your marbles in close quarters, <laughs> um, which is not relevant at all right now. Uh, it's about a U boat. Um, it's about a U-boat taking off from Germany and engaging in various missions. The whole crew going through a lot of things together, going through both their own difficulties in war and the difficulties of the fact that the Third Reich clearly don't know what they're doing and are sending them off to missions that they know will not be successful. And just them dealing with that shit, basically. like That's the whole movie, is them dealing with that issue. One thing, because I I never seen this before. This is a movie that has. I think we talked about this briefly uh, in in our chat. Um, this is a movie that is that practically only has its reputation. Like it's not a movie that like it's on this bracket, but it's one of those movies that never gets talked about as being like a goat movie, right? Yeah, like like is is highly acclaimed. Like um, it uh did so well at the Oscars. It's is I think the highest it was the highest grossing German movie of all time at the point that it came out or something like that. It's at least did the very well. Um it was in the conversation during the time it came out as one of the best movies of that year and of the eighties. And then it just kind of vanished from everything. Which Yeah, I think part oh, I, I, I was gonna say I think partially because of the length. The length is intimidating. I was kind of dreading it before watching it, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, it's like three and a half hours is a big ask. Yeah, but uh, no, it turns out, uh, turns out this is it's the filmmaking. Part of the reason it's so brisk is because the filmmaking is appropriately claustrophobic, very very often, but very very brisk and exciting in a way that doesn't feel like um, it feels more like a thriller. Yeah, like like every time they run through the U boat. Uh, from like front to back and you're just seeing people kind of like run past and barely make it past the camera because like quarters are so tight it's exciting every single time with that little handheld camera yeah it's like some sam raimi shit it's very 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 exciting yeah this movie kind of represents something that i like to call the my dinner with andre problem which is if you describe this movie you are going to undersell it no matter what. Yes. There's nothing 100%. that I can say that will make this movie sound good. Because what is my dinner with Andre? Uh, it's Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn fucking bullshit for three hours at a restaurant. Which doesn't sound that great. But my, my dinner with Andre is a great movie. Now, if I tell you, what's Das Boot about? Well, it's a crew of a U-boat uh, basically stuck underwater for like two hours. And the other hour and a half, it's political machinations and... Um, the failures of the Third Reich doesn't sound super exciting, but is it's really kind of an edge on edge of your seat watch. It has a lot in common with uh, with a movie that we're going to see in the next matchup, The Wages of Fear. Yes, one hundred percent. And when I brought up Downfall earlier, I think that's actually a useful comparison point uh, for two reasons. One is the claustrophobia that Derek has mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. because. Downfall attempted to create that by being, hey, you're stuck in this bunker, but then every like other scene was outside the bunker. So you never actually got that feeling of being stuck in the same place with these people for so long and really getting the sense of how small of a space it is. Whereas here, you're almost never out of the boat. Like there's a couple sequences at the very beginning 
kind of in the middle. There's one sequence in the very, very end. But the rest of it, you are on that boat and you are not leaving that boat anytime soon. Yeah, everything is shot in like very uncomfortable close up. Yeah, and I think like um, the U boat is 10 feet across for like the living quarters. Something like that. Something like that. And you feel that the entire time, the way that it's shot, you. It's not shot in a way that you can ignore that. That is constantly on your mind, how little space there is. Something as simple as there's one part where uh, the higher-ups are having a like dinner on the boat, and someone has to go past them, and they literally have to like stand up so that that person just move past them. And just that small detail will tells you, hey, there's no space for anyone to be alone or private on this boat. Yeah, you, you, and everything smells like fucking yes. just B.O., and it's yeah, because and it, like this is kind of a it's kind of a cruel film because they do get out of the boat at one point and it plays kind of like oh the release valve, but then you look at your t- look at your watch and it's like oh fuck there's still half an hour left in this movie what's gonna happen yeah and you know the, the that classic trope of like the the futility of the futility of war and um just uh it's. Now it's a hell of a thing. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's kind of one of the, it's kind of a long seventies movie because it does have this sort of bummer seventies ending. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other thing, if I if I may, that about it that really worked for me in comparison to Downfall is that Downfall, when we discussed it, it was a little, it wasn't openly attempting to be, but it was a little too friendly to the Nazis, and uh, it was a little, it wasn't quite hagiography, but it bordered on that sometimes with like the. The still frame, like, Animal House shots at the end. Like, here's where these Nazis are now. <laughs> um, and it kind of was un- an uncomfortable watch for that reason. And I don't think it actually attempted – it d- didn't succeed in its attempt to actually critique the uh, Nazi regime. Whereas there's characters in here you like, but all the characters you like fucking hate the fact that Adolf Hitler is leading <laughs> this army. And yeah. the, uh, there's the opening of the film, one of the few times you're out of the boat for an extended period of time – is set at this party uh, that's supposed to commemorate a captain uh, who's getting an award. And everyone there is drunk out of their minds. Everyone there has this air of knowing that the Third Reich is doomed. I think I described it to you as like a last, the fall of Rome kind of sequence. Like we're being mm-hmm. decadent, we're being ridiculous and out there, and we're just doing everything right now because we know this isn't going to last. We know this is going to be gone soon enough. And the person who actually accepts the award starts out his speech by making fun of Hitler in front of everybody, uh, basically saying, like, this motherfucker doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, that is the perpetual feeling of the captain of the U-boat itself. And the one person in the U-boat you're kind of meant not to like is this, like, Hitler youth-looking motherfucker who is the only person who, like, won't grow out a beard, who, like, keeps his, like, uniform pressed beautifully every single day. And... The way you learn to like him is because he gets rid of his affectations, because he develops the cynicism that everyone else has, because he finally has firsthand experience to know, hey, they lied to us. Hey, they are not acting in our best interests. They clearly don't know what's going on, the higher ups. And this dream of Nazi Germany was always bullshit. And he finally sees that. And by the end, he's got like that five o'clock shadow. And he's finally like a likable character. And that is such a more effective and less didactic way to get that same idea across uh, without having like, like the downfall was able to do. I agree. Uh, Before we move on, I would just like to draw attention to uh, 
to Wolfgang Peterson, director Wolfgang Peterson's American filmography. Okay. Which is one of the great, not quite good cable movie runs of all time. Because uh, Peterson had been working as a director since the 60s. And uh, Das Boot was his like breakthrough. That was like, this is by far and away the thing that's going to be on his plaque. This is the first thing that's going to be, this is going to be in the headline whenever, in, in his obituary. Mm-hmm. Not to get too dark or anything. But, you know, it's going to be Wolfgang Peterson, director of Das Boot, right? Yes. So this is how he follows it up. This is from 1984 to 2006. So this is 20 years in the States. So he does Das Boot. 1984, The NeverEnding Story. 1985, Enemy Mine, which is a science fiction film, uh, which was uh, a co-production between West Germany and the States. Isn't Dennis Quaid in that? Dennis Quaid and Luke Gossett Jr. in Alien Makeup. Thank God. Yeah. Um, the film stars Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. as a human and alien soldier, respectively, who become stranded together on an inhospitable planet and must overcome their mutual distrust in order to cooperate and survive. So that sounds insane. <laughs> so, okay, that's 1985, Enemy Mine. 1991, Shattered, which is a psychological thriller starring Tom Berenger uh, and Bob Hoskins. And it doesn't look... <laughs> It doesn't look good either. Okay. I could be wrong. 1993 in the Line of Fire, which is... Uh, which is fine. Which is fine. Uh, 19... Okay. 1995 Outbreak. Very relevant right now. Yeah. With uh, with Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo and uh, Morgan Freeman, and, which is and, one of the great... And your friend and mine, Kevin Spacey. Yes, of course. Uh, 1997 Air Force One. Great flick. 2000, The Perfect Storm. Okay. 2004, Troy. Okay. 2006, Poseidon. Was it the remake of... Uh... The, the Poseidon Adventure, yeah. Hot damn. Who who can we get to direct this remake of Poseidon Adventure? I know, let's get the guy who did Dust Boot 20 years ago. <laughs> that is... What a run that is. That is like its own row of the video store. You can program a day <laughs> of cable TV. And no one be none the wiser that the same guy directed all of those movies. I think it's fair to say none of those are as accomplished as Das Boot, though. I would go so far as to say that none of those movies are as good as Das Boot. But Das Boot, I feel, good enough to move on to round... Try that again. Want to hear it. Good enough to move on to round two. (laughs) Yes, I agree. I think from this, uh, the fact that we didn't have much to say about uh, Platoon at all. And we didn't even get to talking about Jurgen Prock now during our discussion of Das Boot. We didn't get to talk about half the actors in it. Uh, we have so much more to talk about there. And it is a wonderful film that you should watch. It's three hours long. We know. We know it sounds boring. Please watch Das Boot. It is much better than you think it is. Yeah. Like, I don't know what the fuck you're watching during this time of uh, self-isolation. But what the fuck else are you going to watch? Yeah, you don't have anything you're else to watch? do. Be, be nice to us. Watch a movie that we said is good. Yeah, watch watch Das Boot. Although Das Boot kind of a bummer. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, maybe watch Never Ending Story instead. <laughs> Never Ending Story is not like happy though. Uh, good point. Um, Listen maybe... to the band Atreyu. Do that. <laughs> Atreyu? That's a band. Yeah. Are you not familiar with Atreyu? Yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm familiar because like my 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 seedster cousin was into them 15 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> they're a metalcore band that I used to listen to. You should listen to Atreyu. You shouldn't actually, because I'm pretty sure it's terrible, and I haven't listened to it since I was like 16. 
But yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's aged all that well. But the Crimson certainly was a, mu- a mu- music video that played a lot on the television. The Crimson. The Crimson. Is there a lot of blood involved? Derek, are you asking me to recall the lyrics to an Atreyu song from like nine? 19- no, no, two thousand four. I forbid you. Okay. We're moving on. I'm the, I'm the fucking tangent police. I'm here to say we should move on. Okay, next one. Our second matchup. Will you still uh, so- hold me when you see what I have done? Will you still <laughs> kiss me the same when you taste my victim's blood? So crimson and red, I feel it flowing from your lips. My heart is dead, and so are you. Oh, gosh. Oof. Oof. There's also an earlier line that's, that's, a- that's I'm an Anne Rice novel come to life. <laughs> oh, big L there for, for Atreyu there. Uh, man, uh, I... I'm going to listen to this after we're done. Atreyu, probably not great anymore, but I can see why, like, 15-year-old me was really into that. Yeah, that's, that sounds like pretty much every band I can possibly think of. It sounds like someone bad like glass jaw lyrics. What's glass jaw? Uh, Derek, you can't, we can't do this. We can't start talking about glass jaw. Uh, shout out to all my glass jaw fans out there. <laughs> hey, ever listened to those albums recently? They're really sexist. They're, like, shockingly sexist. Like, oh my Christ. Uh, I re-listened to everything you ever wanted to know about silence just the other day, and I couldn't finish it because it was so bad. I listened to Bare Naked Ladies a lot when I was sixteen. <laughs> Ape Dos Mill is still still fucking rules. So, anyways, uh, what were we talking about? Wages of Fear, Lives of Others, the Stasi, right. and how great um, they are. But yeah, fucking please, no one take this out of out of context. The Stasi were great. <laughs> All right, so let's see. Next matchup. So congratulations to Dust Boot. You move on. And uh, we will see who Dust Boot will face in round two, scheduled currently for 2022. Uh, So number 58, the 58th seed in our bracket. Uh, I still have the Wikipedia page for Enemy Mine open. The Lives (laughs) of Others. Released in 2006, directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Written also by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. That is not his full name. You should read his full name. Oh, God, right? Um, is that not his full name? Uh, oh, um, okay, I got it. I, like, I have pulled up Maria, I got it pulled up as well. Florian Maria George Christian Graf Henkel von Dannerschmark. Thank you. Appreciate it. From now on, we're just going to call him... Director of the we're Tourist. We're just going to call him... <laughs> That's right! <laughs> he did direct the Tourist! <laughs> oh, man. Who is... Okay, so, I mean, I have... We even... Haven't even started talking about the tale of the tape. This feels like kind of a Metsu Kasovitz thing where you have like high-ish ceiling, really low floor. I'm not saying that Lives of Others is as good a movie as I ain't because it's not. But what is it with like these careers are fascinating. Anyway, The Lives of Others, 2006, German film, uh, written and directed by Florian Graf Henkel von Dannerschmark, um, uh, starring... Ulrich Mühle, I hope that's how that's pronounced. Martina Gedek, Sebastian Koch, and Ulrich Tukur. Um, $2 million budget, $77.3 million take, and uh, won the Academy Award in 2007 for Best... Uh, now it's called Best International Film. Um, oh, is it? Weird. Yeah, it's not called Best Foreign Language Film anymore. So theoretically, like, an international film in English could win it? I uh, see. I think it's understood that it's still not in the English language. Okay. Hey, wait. Well, hey, what if they uh, just nominated those films for actual awards, like a real fucking Academy would do? What if we I did mean, that? I kind of cleaned up last year. Yeah. To be, f- I, I, I'm hoping that like opens the floodgates so that. I mean, having I'm, any I'm hopes for the does. Oscars is of course obscene. 
and disgusting <laughs> and perverted. So I don't want to go that far, but yeah. I mean, we already have a movie podcast. So we're already like 70% of the way there. <laughs> we're talking about the top 250 movies of all time, according to the Internet Movie Database. All hope is lost for us. Remember how might as well just- Queen Phoenix won Best Actor last year for Joker? Sure do. Oscars got Joker-fied. <laughs> I still haven't seen Joker. I don't know if it's I ever will. Fine. It it's a movie that deserved basically none of the attention it got because it's not that bad and it's not that good and nothing in about it is actually that interesting except for the fact that people apparently thought that the like the, there was going to be mass shootings across the country because of this film and then nothing happened. Um, it was a real moral panic. It was very strange. How is Joaquin's performance though? And eh, not very good. I mean, it's fine. I guess it is. It is the most middling of the Joker performances. It's not as bad as, um, what's his name, Jared, Jared Leto. And it's not as good <laughs> as everyone else who did it. Uh, including the late great Cesar Romero. Did you see that Jared Leto was on like, uh, I-, I made a joke on Twitter like uh, a, week, a week ago uh, about coming. Oh, yeah, I saw this. Yes, about coming out of like uh, a desert retreat, like a desert spiritual retreat, and realizing that coronavirus exists because I haven't had a phone for a week. And it turns out just Jared Leto just did that in real life. He came out of a retreat yeah, and was like, oh, fuck, this is a thing, huh? Yeah, and apparently some people were like, like, uh, people were like rafting in the Grand Canyon. They knew as what they, they came to that same conclusion. <sighs> Versus. The Wages of Fear, a.k.a. Le Salaire de la Peur, which is uh, released in 1953, directed, uh, written and, uh, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau, written by Henri-Georges Clouseau and Jérôme Jérôme, based on the novel Le Salaire de la Peur by Georges Arnaud, starring Yves Montand, Charles Vanel, Folco Lully, and Peter Van Eck. Um, I don't really have any, um, any budget stats on this. Um, and, uh, didn't really have any like awards play, but it's uh, let's put it this way: it's a very well respected film yes. with a long tail, uh, and it was remade by uh, William Friedkin in the seventies as a Sorcerer, which is a uh, fucking masterpiece. But we're not here to talk about Sorcerer; we're here to talk about the Wages of Fear in relation to the lives of others. So, what do you make of the lives of others? It was not what I was expecting going in. I had no read on this. I I, I couldn't. The read I had is for some reason in my head. This was a Lassie Hallstrom film. I don't know why I thought sure that. Ain't. I can't tell you why I thought that was the case, but I thought it would be kind of like a a dramedy in a certain sense. Uh, but it's a pretty okay. just straightforward, uh, like straight straight ahead drama about the Stasi and the secret police of East Berlin and East Germany. Yeah, uh, pretty pretty right down the middle, classy. Pretty normal, pretty good looking. It, it kind of Oscar-y drama. It, it's a better version of what we said when we talk about Downfall, which is like this looks like an Oscar film just made in Germany. This looks like an uh-huh. Oscar film just made in Germany, except I liked it a great deal more than I like Downfall. Yeah, it's got. It doesn't have. Well, it kind of. It approaches. It it has the benefit of not having to deal with the specter of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> which every day I wake up and I'm an happy advantage. that I don't have to deal with the specter of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> It's a, it's, it's quite a thing for anything to have to deal with. Um, you know what I just realized, Isabel? We talk about Hitler a lot on this fucking show. <laughs> should, we, should we edit out all of our discussions of Hitler on this show? I mean, here's no, the no, problem is that, that IMDb talks about Hitler all the time. IMDb is like half Hitler movies. It's a lot of World War II movies. And, but this is not a World War II movie. This is a, uh, this is a, a Berlin Wall movie. But it is a German this movie, is a, and we all know about those Germans. 
We all know about those Germans. Um, so the lives of others is basically a story of uh, a, a guy who uh, – a, basically a, 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 a member of the secret police who basically just spies on the East German population. And the way this film is edited – and I think I enjoyed this part in a way that, was, that I was not meant to enjoy it – discovers the humanity in supposed subversives because he listens to a piece of nice piano music. Yes, I, I like that part quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like – he has a moment of real. Uh, the um, let's see. The character played by uh, oh shit. Did I, uh, here we go. The character played by Ulrich Muha basically is spying on a writer who. Uh, oh god, it, this movie. Should, 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 should I, the, I, the, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on this. I just watched it yesterday. Give, uh, well, I actually, actually just watched it today. <laughs> <laughs> but I forgot that. This, so this is a movie about the Stasi, but this is about a love triangle. <laughs> well, a love triangle where one of the people. Is not known to exist by the other two people. <laughs> yeah, and basically uses his considerable clout to uh, basically sexually assault someone on the red. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, but yes, yeah, so this is a film about uh, basically a playwright uh, in East Germany who appears uh, to everyone who knows him to be completely loyal to the state. But of course, he can't act like the fact that he's that perfect must mean that he's hiding something. So they set up for not just that reason, but for also the reason to discuss previously the love triangle they set up constant surveillance on him like 24-hour surveillance on him and his yeah, wife they bug his house and or his lover i should say not technically his uh wife yes and it's just a and i say film about him slowly actually being radicalized and then also the person who's spying on him also being radicalized and then east germany falling apart yes so like the parallel i i believe is to be drawn between um, the conversation uh, Ulrich, well obviously yes but uh, uh more on a thematic point uh, from a thematic point of view uh Ulrich Muha's character rediscovering his humanity and the berlin wall falling oh i guess it's a uh, copy i i'm very dumb and i didn't go to film for to school for film so i didn't even think about that no because that's like, uh, that is the, that is a very obvious metaphor that I just didn't pay attention to. To be fair, I was playing but, Animal Crossing for part of the time watching this. So I mean, I didn't play Animal Crossing because I knew we had to watch these movies today. <laughs> I I was I, I was very good and I really want to play. But this film was a little strange. Not mm. not necessarily because of its content or how it was styled, just because I couldn't quite get a read on what it was trying to do exactly, and. There was a um, – I read a couple articles about this film and apparently after – like a couple years after it came out when uh, Edward Snowden went and did his heroic stuff. Um, and I'm not being ironic there. I think that what he did is actually a genuinely wonderful thing. Um, all whistleblowers are great. Self-isolation legend. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, while that whole news cycle was happening, this movie was being brought up and it was like, hey, let's talk about surveillance states. Let's talk about uh, secret police. But this film isn't really about that. I think trying to relate this film to like the NSA is going to not to lead you to a cul-de-sac where you don't actually learn anything. No, this movie has the same kind of um, character arc and through line as any number of middling 2000s era Jim Carrey vehicles. Only it's set in East Germany circa 1985. It has different clothes on, basically. Yes, Uh, it's it's a journey of self-discovery. It's a working stiff who realizes sort of the, the power of love and art and human connection. Which is 
on its surface okay, but given the context, is fucking weird. It is really weird. Although, I want to bring up something, and I have kind of a bigger question for you that I'm not sure... I'm kind of putting you on the spot for this next question. So, I hope it should go without saying, but I should be I should be clear about this just to make sure. Okay. Um, neither of us are fans of the Stasi. Sure. Uh, generally, um, not into authoritarianism in its, in its many forms. Yes. But I do have some reservations about why films like this and other films about the repressive nature of socialist regimes end up getting play in America when other films about like other socialist film other films about socialism rather do not and i think that that is not necessarily a nefarious thing i think it is more that they match with what our common perception of these things is it so happens that the stasi were actually awful and that matches sure. up but I'm a little bit wary of a rapt, a, a rapturous American response to a movie about how socialism, a socialist state was evil. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not that it's wrong. It's that I feel like there's it's an suspect. ulterior motive going on there. Hmm. Okay. The, the, the same way that, the same way that like I inherently bristle a bit when people, it's going to sound maybe a bit strange, but I inherently bristle a bit when people, like like normies criticize the Soviet Union, not because I like the Soviet Union, but because I know that a great deal of what people think about the Soviet Union was indeed propaganda, which is, to be clear, not to say the Soviet Union was good. The Soviet Union did plenty of terrible things. I am not a, a Leninist or a Stalinist or anything like that. I actually heavily disagree, not just practically, but also theoretically with Lenin. But so much of that derision of socialist states and failed socialist states ends up seeming to be at least tangentially tied to the maintenance of capitalist interests. This is a, b- a big question. I'm sorry to just lay it on you like this. I think it's an in- I think it's interesting, but I think I think it's just I think I, I guess it's the same way that like if if I maybe use like a more a more vulgar comparison, the way that I inherently bristle when i see someone that's not trans criticize um uh caitlin jenner okay because like i also don't like her i think she's a piece of shit but i f- this is this maybe feels a little weird maybe it doesn't feel like it's coming from the same authentic place maybe there's some kind of motive here that is beyond the motive that is the one i agree with i think that's at some point reasons for disliking something almost become impossible to parse and that becomes and then it becomes a matter of like nuance it ma- it becomes a matter of like like disliking things for the right reasons is kind of a slippery slope i find yeah but then you also get into issues with like like everyone who hated twilight did they hate twilight because it was twilight and they didn't like the writing or did they hate twilight because it was something teenage girls liked and a woman wrote it and therefore it is dumb you know like that's i i i, th- I think there's overlap there both those things could be true and I think that the issue is trying to pull out the good faith criticisms from the bad faith ones. I think this is the kind of thing that you can only really get to the bottom of whenever you actually like talk with people. There's, it's, I think like getting a broad read on this will just get no results. So I think it's, o- I think only when you kind of put it out there can you actually get a solid read. Because if you look at it from any kind of distance, it all kind of blurs together. And then, like, you can only, ha- you can only really truly have your own read on things. And 
sometimes there will be people who agree with you, probably not for the right reasons. And there's no real way to parse that. And I think that's just that's just a thing that we have to deal with because it's 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 kind of you can't know, really. I don't know if I've answered your question at all. No, I mean I mean I, I get what you're saying. I think this uh to me that raises a bunch of questions and a bunch of problems as well. For example, like I think that makes it easy for people to quote unquote align themselves with your disagreements, even though you might find them politically and morally objectionable. Like when I criticize liberalism, this is I mean, I'm coming at it from obviously a leftist standpoint. But if I just say I don't like liberals, that is a statement that can be taken by people who literally want me dead. <laughs> like that is it's a and, and I think that's the fact that those things can be combined so easily if we're not clear about intention can be dangerous in a way. I'm not saying this is something I agree with, but I I more understand watching a film like this why some like western uh leftists inherently bristle at any criticism of uh Soviet of so- the Soviet state or any um nominally communist state is for similar reasons uh where it's like I don't know quite where you're coming from, but I feel like a lot of this is coming from a bad place and I don't know how to like separate those things exactly, I guess. I think the answer would be some kind of um uh well the the, the answer is necessarily discursive. It involves nuance, uh, which is nuance, difficult. exactly. And I mean we kind of live in an age where nuance doesn't play. Yeah, Twitter does not have a lot of nuance. Literally the no. format like precludes nuance. Uh yeah, basically the 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 very form basically in does not like the only way you can really get any nuance down is through say a thread and at that point why not just write a blog post yeah so i think it's a obviously it's a fair criticism but i don't know if i don't know if we're in a position where we can actually accurately say that this is the case because this movie was well received yes yes it was by normies and by by normies, which is um, that sounds unnecessarily dismissive. It's not uh, meant to be that, but it is a movie that plays well with a wide audience. And I, to be sure, kind of applying. If we were to, t- I don't know if using the Academy as kind of like a calc for like a wider sentiment. Like I don't know if, like I'm not saying that um, people are immune to propaganda. They're not. But I don't know if... As Garfield said. As Garfield said. Um, I don't know if a lot of people... like Because what we do is kind of specialized. Not everyone thinks about movies as deeply as we do. And that's in the sense that I don't know if many of the people who saw the lives of others aren't just thinking German Oscar Beatty drama and are not thinking about the further implications of it. Yes. So yeah, I think it's it's something that can only be, um, I think I think the, the the nut of it can only be exposed through discursive nuance and gotta jerk that nut out. I, yes, and I don't know in what like arenas like that discur- that discursive uh, nuance would sort of prop up. I don't know if people are at, were at cocktail parties in like like early two thousand seven, going you hear about this the lives of others, and then talked about. Sort of their their personal history with anti communist propaganda, you know. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I, I just, it's more that I guess like what I'm trying to more just bring up is that 
uh, kind of like an aspect of the IMDb list as a list in that because it is the mainstream list, because it's the, uh, what's the word for it? Like the agreed upon list uh, of the largest number of people, it inherently leans towards biases. And I think it's possible. I'm not saying this necessarily entirely probable or entirely the result of it, but I'm sure that anti-socialist sentiment has something to do with its placement here, just as I'm sure that, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about American History X, um, I'm sure that some of those votes for American History X were from neo-Nazis. I know neo-Nazis like that movie quite a bit. And it becomes a quite, it, that question of intent becomes more fraught at that point. So it's not really like, I'm, I'm not asking for an answer, I guess. I'm just more of like pointing out something that I was thinking about as, as the movie was going on. I mean, there are a lot of war movies on this list, and it's a lot of World War II in Vietnam. Yeah. So it, it's, it's very much like the list for the kind of person who says, oh, I love history, and then literally only reads about World War II for, you know, no reason. There's definitely nothing behind that. It's definitely totally innocuous and innocent. I'm being I mean, facetious, audience, because I think there is something <laughs> like very dangerous about that whole like, that, that that crowd. Let's say, like, if you you see it a lot in like uh, people who are into war gaming, people who are into wartime strategy games, you will find that a lot of them like playing the Nazis way more than they like playing the Allied uh, soldiers. Imagine that. I wonder why. It's uh, boy. Deus Volt um, and all that. I'm sorry. Deus Volt. What's Deus Volt? Oh, I'm. I feel like I'm just. This whole episode is me infecting you with awful alt right things. Well, you're not infecting me because I still don't know what it is. Okay. Uh, should I explain it? Maybe give me give me the, give me the tweet length summary. Okay. So Deus Volt was a uh, Catholic motto associated with like the Crusades, especially the First Crusade, and then uh, it became it was like a a phrase that's used in a popular strategy game about like the Middle Ages. And it became a meme among, uh, like, white nationalists and alt-right people to say, like, Deus Volt as, like, a, hey, this is, like, for the white Christian homeland. All right. So if you ever see someone just just randomly say Deus Volt, they're probably a white nationalist, a Nazi. Just to, here's a practice hint for you. All right. I'll keep that in mind. I'll probably forget sometime this week. Okay. That's probably good for you. I It's probably not good for me to have all this shit in my head, but hey. So we spent a lot of time talking about the, the meta text of this movie. We did. Um, and as far as like just structure and performance and look, direction, script, it's – It's middle brow shit. It's right down the middle. It's a, just a meatball. But here's here's the weird thing though. I would never imagine this being on like cable or something. It's not one of those right down the middle movies. It's not a movie you would throw on for funsies because there is a vague – sort of current of unpleasantness the whole way through, which is just as well, because this is about the German, East German secret police. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also kind of can't help the feel that Martina Gedick was in this movie basically just to get groped and die. Yeah, she doesn't really have a character. Her character is that she, she loves her husband, she gets sexually assaulted, and she takes drugs. And then yeah. she Which goes sells him not out. really anywhere. Yes. Yeah, she rats him out to the secret police. Um, yeah, she's she, spoilers, but I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're listening that, to this podcast, you get it. It's not like, no, yeah, no one in this movie really has a character. It's like the secret policeman, the the playwright, the playwright's girlfriend, the subversive friends, the one guy who looks like Tommy Chong, who's just kind of there. <laughs> 
I'm so glad he noticed that because I noticed that too. And I was like, this guy seems like he does not belong in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's like I think they were thinking, oh, he kind of has like a kind of a Karl Marx haircut going on, but no, he just looks like Tommy Chong. <laughs> and I'm sure. And speaking of Karl Marx, the the like at the end 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 when um, uh, Wiesler goes to the bookstore to buy um, to buy uh, Dryman's book, and they cut back, and it's still called like Karl Marx Bookstore or whatever. I'm sure that's supposed to be profound, but it just seemed like a weird edit. Yeah, there's. I think this movie might play better if we were from Germany and we, we probably could understand more of these like cultural connotations, but I can understand Hitler bad, but I can also understand <laughs> secret police bad, but this seems more like a character piece than a secret police bad movie. Yes. So let's talk about the wages of fear. A film that I've been meaning to see for probably a decade and I just never got around to until this list forced me to. So one of the, it's been one of the joys of doing this podcast is being forced to watch movies that I've been meaning to watch for forever, but I just would never watch on my own because I didn't really give a shit and they seemed boring. Uh, and this movie wasn't boring. No, it was quite exciting. Um, so what is the broad the broad plot of this? Um, Some guys got to drive a truck, and if they fuck up driving the truck, they all die. That's right. Um, they're basically... Uh, it's, it's a crew of men who are basically stuck in limbo on... An island. Uh, there's no countries. There's no country listed. Uh, it was shot. Uh, where was this thing shot? But in any case, the name of the place is um, uh, Las Piedras. So it's like vaguely Central American, vaguely Caribbean, vaguely South uh, South American. It's definitely South. I'm pretty sure it's South American because the oil company is called the Southern Oil Company. That's right. Um, so basically, SOC, Standard Oil Company. Get it? Get it. I got it. I got it. Um, so it's these men who are basically – they basically live in – not squalor, but they live They live in limbo. They have no work. They have no way out of the island. Like the, they, they're basically stuck in an elemental uh, capitalistic uh, death spiral. They can't get work, so they can't leave. And they can't leave because they can't get any work to get paid. So uh, along comes a job working for uh, – what is it? The U.S. military? Or, no, it's no, a southern oil company. It's a southern, it's a southern oil company. So an, an American company, it sounds like. Yes. And uh, yeah, so basically they get a gig whereby uh, you got to drive this truck of dynamite over this way, over like rickety bridges and shit. And if you like break too hard, it'll blow up and you will die. Or you and, get uh, go over too big of a bump or you do any number of if, – if a single rock hits one of these containers, you're fucked. Kablooey. And yeah, so basically that's like the great tension of the movie. It's can these can these guys drive? Can these guys live? Spoiler alert: most of them don't. I, I mean, spoiler alert: none of them do. Doesn't one of them survive at the end? He dies, bro. Oh, he does die, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right. He he was oh uh, yeah. On like the, drive in the last home. five minutes on the drive home, he like carelessly just weaves. Which we will talk about triumph. that scene because it's very bad. But um. <sighs> So here, here's like, uh, what if, are you doing? If I we don't like to nitpick stuff like that, but Jesus, what do you mean? I mean, I, I mean, no, no, no. It's like we, like generally speaking, I don't like to nitpick like character choices in a movie. Oh. But this is incredibly stupid. I thought you were mad at me. I was like, I didn't do anything. No, no, no. Of course not. <laughs> okay. Um. So if I may take like a like a broad overview of this film, sure. There's like an hour and a half of this movie that I love. 
okay. there's like an hour of this movie that I either think is middling to actively bad. Okay. It's very strange. Uh, like I, I'm actually considering going in and just doing my own edit job because I feel like this movie could be cut down significantly. A, it's like talking about that ending. It should end with him collapsing in front of the oil fire. That's 100%. the end of the film. Perfect image. Uh, and the whole lead up to it where they're in that town and they're just stuck there. It's mm-hmm. about twice as long as it needs to be to get its point across. And it has a bunch of incident that doesn't actually go anywhere. Like every single thing with um, uh, Linda. Yeah, Vera Clouseau, who was um, Henri-Georges Clouseau's wife, I believe. Yeah. Uh, she's a wonderful actress. She's very nice to look at. But at the same time, she has no bearing over the plot and she has no character besides woman who is there to swoon over this man who seems to fucking hate her. Yeah. Um, weirdly infantilized sexy lady. Yeah. Uh, I would basically cut her entire thing out of there. There's no point to have it there. It doesn't even make the stakes higher because the stakes are already high enough. It's the same reason that I think that, like, usually, you know me, I'm one for a bummer ending. I'm all for mm-hmm. a bummer ending. Sure. But the ending of him falling, like, passing out in front of the oil fire is more of a bummer ending than him dying by, like, swerving the fucking truck around driving home. Yeah, taking the corner too fast. Yeah, it, it feels so disconnected from the rest of it. And, like, like he gets over the death of his friend Joe so quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're like, that should be devastating to him. That should be like, fuck, this man just died in my arms because I ran over his leg. Yeah, that was, like, the whole, the oil pool sequence, the oil puddle sequence, great sequence. Great. There's a lot of great sequences in here. There's that one. There's um the sequence with the washboard, which I love. There was, like, a washboard road, but they have to keep up a certain speed. or They either have to be above a certain speed or below a certain speed to not blow up. Mm-hmm. And one car who is significantly farther behind the other one chooses to do the higher speed, and the other car in front of them chooses to do the lower speed. And neither of them can slow down or speed up till they're out of the washboard thing. And, of course, at the very end, they almost hit each other. Mm-hmm. It's so, like, genuinely thrilling and exciting, and you're like, it it ratchets up the tension so consistently and so well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also the sequence with the rotting bridge, or not the bridge, bridge. like the, like, kind of thing hanging off the side of the mountain to make sure you can turn around better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which I thought was wonderful. There's a lot of great sequences in here, and there's also a lot of cruft that I don't entirely know what it's doing. Yeah, uh, all, all these sequences that we were talking about are in that sort of middle hour and a half. Yes. Which I loved. Like I said, I loved that part. Basically, from the moment they get in the trucks until that final scene that I've talked about, I'm all I'm all for. I actually uh, pivoting back to the uh, to the beginning of the film. I enjoyed the shoe leather of basically establishing it does, the the long drawn out intro. I feel does a good job of setting up how kind of like just off the map everything is. Yes. How just um. You know, like, save for, like, the, like, Vera Cruzo's poor characterization aside, uh, I think it does a very good uh, job of setting up uh, character. Uh, uh, it does a good job of setting up location, of setting up feel. It kind of, it lays, one could say too much, but I appreciated groundwork for what was going to come. It did a good job of kind of chipping away at, um, I think the, the, the weird hour before they start doing it, is a good setup to the uh, following hour of like nerve eroding tension because by minute forty five, I'm I'm kind of like not strung out, but I'm like kind of like on their level because I am like out of it. I am I am as 
kind of like all my bearings are gone because there I are get, no bearings I definitely to get be that. had. And that's when I, when I read um, Roger Ebert's review, he says um, about because the original cut of this cut a significant part of that out. Mm-hmm. And he says, um, so the opening sequence set in the dismal village where unemployed men fight for jobs is similar to the opening of John Houston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, even down to the detail of visiting a local barber. While Houston uses opening to establish his characters and work in some wry humor, Clouseau mostly creates mostly aimless ennui. And I think he's correct, but also wrong, because I think it does create aimless ennui, but I think that's also the purpose of it, is to like let you understand why these people would agree to this job. And mm-hmm. that sense of there's nothing happening here, it's just sticky and hot and shitty all the time. Does help set up that further part. I just think it goes on a little too long and there's some unnecessary stuff in it. But I think that I agree that the tone of it I liked quite a bit. Okay. Um, and yeah, I'm not like – we've talked about this already. But the the, the, the swerving, off the, swerving off the hairpin turn at the end is like <sighs> – kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Because you've had like two hours of like masterpiece before that. And it's like, eh. You went on just a bit too long. You stayed on just a bit too long. Yeah. But I I, th- I think that that maybe portrays a worse image of the film than should actually be portrayed. Cause no, I think I think it's a masterpiece. I wouldn't go that far, but I'd say it's a very, very good film. And I mean, I feel like we should kind of cut it there in the discussion because this is clearly the one that's moving on. And one yes. thing I do want to talk about next time and save, like just have in the in the back pocket for when we talk about this again, is its commentary on capitalism, which I think is fascinating and actually kind of not kind of very well done but mm-hmm. a this uh episode we've already been recording for like what an hour and a half or something close to yeah so uh i'm cool with saying hey wages of fear great news you're gonna be here for a second round congratulations and uh let's move on to the future the future um all right so we were gonna so yeah that's it uh so uh, look forward f- uh, to the following matchup in round two um it's going to be uh thus boot versus the wages of fear uh next time in our next episode our matchups are going to be as follows heat versus judgment at nuremberg huh and uh <laughs> the lord of the rings the return of the king versus dog day afternoon one of our uh, I, I don't want to give too much away but based i have already watched these movies and based on what i've seen one of our strongest episodes in terms of the quality of the films discussed i think that's a pretty strong quartet of films um do we have anything else that we have to take care of? Did is is the Middle Brown Madness inbox empty? Um, no, it's not. Um, but I'm actually uh, actually no. I I will read some stuff from there. Okay. because uh, we also have the other thing to do. Oh, what's that? Our our new ongoing fan fiction series. Oh my god, I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Holy shit! Of course. So this is part two. You wanna you wanna you wanna catch people up? Uh, so in the first, I mean, there's not much plot that's happened so far. <laughs> in the first um, episode of what do you call it? Uh, of of this fan fiction that I'm writing for the podcast, uh, not about the podcast, but about the movies we discuss in the podcast. Uh, Marty McFly woke up uh, in his parents' house, thirty-ish uh, years older than he was at the end of the last film we saw him in. Defeated, worn down, and he gets a call from a mysterious man who has something he needs to do. Something he needs help with. And uh, at the very end of that, we uh, see that Marty calls Rancho from Three Idiots uh, to call in a favor. That's kind of where we left that one. Um, and I can't, I can't wait to see what other shit you weave into this. 
Uh, so this is chapter two of as of yet untitled fan fiction. I, I still don't know what we're going to call it, but so the familiar sun dapple peninsula in Ladakh was unusually quiet that day as Funsa Kwangdu stared over the cool water. Its rippling sky blue so pure and beautiful against the sand that you could almost taste it just by looking at it. School was closed for holiday and he had stayed behind to work on new ideas for study, new avenues of creativity and group learning, developing inventive exercises in his modest school building. He always appreciated this time. It gave him a chance to clear his head, recharge, get ready for the next session. His pupils were all delightful, wonderful, so clever, and full of life and a love for learning, but his role in the school was nevertheless a bit daunting, trying to hold all of this together to prove his way of teaching, to help his students become the best version of whatever they wanted to be. So much lesson plan to customize, so many sleepless nights making sure the solutions were not one-size-fits-all. It left a man weary, even a man as famously full of vim and vigor as Rancho, and he was no longer a spring chicken. Today, however, he was thankful for a different reason. Seemingly out of nowhere, he'd received a call from an old friend, one he had not heard from in quite a few years. This friend needed to call in an old favor, one Rancho had never thought he'd have to make good on. It's not that he was unwilling, far from it. He had hoped for years, with a small ache in his heart, to hear from this friend about anything at all, and if the phone call was due to a need, then he could live with that. But after the fifth year of no phone calls, no mail, no contact in any way, the hope of meeting him again just once more had drifted out of Rancho's mind, like the clouds that crawled slowly across the sky above him today. The call itself just now was already a blur, an expression of genuine need matched with genuine care that hummed in the back of his mind like an old generator or an aging twin prop pl airplane. He had held himself together while Marty laid out the situation, as precise as he was quick, and Rancho had agreed to help without hesitation. Now, however, he sat on a small wooden bench outside of his schoolhouse, a bench a student had made for him, with all of these subtle, meaningful imperfections of excited creation, and looked out across the water towards the train of consequences that were barreling towards him. He knew Centimeter could handle the kids when they came back, and leaving instructions for him was as simple enough. They worked together about as well as any two people could, and his trust in his abilities was complete. It was not Rancho's absence here, but his presence there, thousands of miles away, across the ocean, that worried him so deeply. The situation was desperate, no doubt. Marty's voice had given the game away immediately, anxiety buzzing like a wasp's nest uh, behind his practiced cool demeanor, an unease that Rancho could tell as easy as anything. Rancho pondered, in his shell-shocked state, whether he was the first call or the last hope, whether this marriage was of desire or convenience. He hoped the former, but something in his somersaulting gut told him the latter. His palms were cold despite the afternoon sun illuminating every wrinkle and callus. The last time they had seen each other, did Marty think about it too? Or is that what drove him away to begin with? When Rancho woke up that daybreak alone, the beatific joy of the morning punctured with every room he could not find Marty in, every unanswered call, before the inevitable disconnect of service. His stomach tumbled as much as it did now, and his body felt like it was moving through water, like he was drowning. The sun shone on him that morning too, through the massive glass windows that surrounded the east side wall of where they had stayed, the glass like a carapace hiding him inside of it. Rancho could sit in this moment forever, encased in amber, playing the events over and over in his mind, but he had spent too much time doing that already. Now was the time to let his body take over, to pack his bags, write that note, and leave, letting momentum carry him towards the uncertain future like he was a passenger inside of himself. With everything he needed, he packed one of the school's trucks and began to drive to the nearest airport. And that's... Chapter two, setting up uh, maybe a little bit of a relationship between Marty and uh, Rancho there, mm -hmm. which maybe we'll learn more about in future installments. <laughs> I don't know where the hell you're going with this. 
uh, the one, the one I won't, I won't give anything away. The one thing I will promise to the to the to listeners is that I will continue to put effort into it, and it will not become a cheap joke. Good. <laughs> um. So yeah, the uh, what do we do? Plugs now. Well, let's see if I remember how to do this. So plugs. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, uh, you can send us an email at middlebrowmadness at gmail dot com. Uh, usually Isabel is the one working the inbox, but, uh, well, no, that's, let's leave it at that. I don't think I've actually ever looked into the inbox. Um, uh, if you want to, uh, follow us on Twitter, you can do that at, uh, middlebrowpod. Uh, you can follow us individually on Twitter, uh, me at, uh, Derek underscore G and Isabel at Space Jam Fan. Um, follow every other show on the Noise Space, uh, podcast network at noisespace.xyz. We are soliciting. Uh, what are we soliciting? We're still soliciting uh, oh, vegan recipes. It's been so long, Jesus. Vegan recipes, uh, British takes on um, the Picts and the Roman conquest of Britain. That's right. Uh, Bollywood, still. Yes. Um, or anything else, really, that you want to share with us? Yeah, go for it. Were you, were you a member of the Stasi, and you think that we were unfairly <laughs> maligning you? Give us an email. <laughs> Drop us a line. Um. But uh, as far as plugs go, oh yeah, we can, you can also follow us both on Letterboxd. Uh, I am I'm there at Derek. Well, my username there is Derek underscore G. You have a new one. I do. It is now the same as my uh, Twitter. It is now Space Jam fan. There you go. Uh, across platforms. I am consistent for once in my life. <laughs> um, and as, I think as far as plugs go, I think uh, oh yeah, oh well, you know, leave us a uh, leave us a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, drop us a drop us a little comment there. We are so small that uh, these do help us in whatever fucking alchemy Apple Podcasts use to recommend po- uh, podcasts. Um, but yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, we will try not to be well. We tr- we will try our best to be expedient with the next episode. Yes, I will. I will give it my my best shot. I'm gonna hit you with my best shot. As fire away. Um. Anyway, should we sign off? Uh yeah we are uh yeah we should sign off uh Bobby Blue uh one two um I guess that's it bye no there's a thing we do <laughs> uh, there's a thing we do I've been do I say it first yes I've been Isabel Arf and I've been Derek Gaudet have movies be jolly have movies be jolly stay safe have a good time Lo- watch your love hands. your neighbor watch three idiots good night that's right good night. <laughs>